1: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
2: Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a
1: campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think.
2: It can be found at your local shelter.
0: We are not, contrary to whatever the title of this episode may be, talking about the history of witchcraft and Wicca specifically. Instead, we wanted to focus more on how both men and women throughout our modern history have used these two things, Wicca and witchcraft for sort of their own purposes, shaped the history of these things to fit narratives that were interesting and convenient for them at the time. Well, I mean, and Wicca is still super popular today and still has
3: lots of feminist underpinnings as well, right?
0: Absolutely. Wicca and witchcraft, although some people would say that those are interchangeable. Um, I saw it explained as like the way that Catholicism is to Christianity, Wicca is to witchcraft, so Wicca has much longer
3: ceremonies. <laughs> is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah. More smells and bells, as
0: a family friend says. Smells and bells. That does sound a lot like witchcraft. I know! <laughs> All of that boil, boil, toil, and trouble, or whatever it is. Eye of Newt. It's, it's so exhausting. Let's talk
3: about feminist eyes of Newt today <laughs> on the podcast. We're going to... Cook up some potions, cast some spells, hopefully on your listening ears. Love it. Um, actual witches are listening and being like, we are being so poorly represented right now because it's not all about spell casting, obviously. I mean, it's
0: not because there's no such thing. Yeah. Yeah. We should dispel that. Yeah. Caroline, see what I did there? We're also going to dispel some other notions, Kristen. Namely that Wicca and witchcraft is this ancient connection to our matriarchal, lady-loving, solely peaceful, utopian past, and that it was fostered completely by women. Oh, man. So so many spoilers just got alerted. So many spoilers. But first, let's break down kind of what we're talking about today. We're, We're talking about two main ideas. Wicca, like we've said, but also this idea of the goddess movement and goddess feminism. Goddess bless, that whole thing that that some people put on bumper stickers on their cars. Exactly. Uh, So the goddess movement is the worshipping of the divine feminine, the archetypal mother. And they really push the idea that women need to understand their own value. And this comes in, too, when you look at feminist Wicca in particular. So there's Wicca, which is a neo-pagan religion. Practitioners sometimes call themselves witches. They worship a duo of a horn god and a moon goddess, although, of course, there are variations, but that feminist Wicca and the goddess movement are super closely aligned because feminist Wicca is a goddess religion. So maybe they don't hold that horned god in the same type of standing that they do the Goddess, But it also incorporates a lot of things like green and eco politics and folk medicine and is also super concerned with women empowering themselves.
3: And there are all sorts of offshoots, including Dianic Wicca, Native American Wicca, Greek and Egyptian, lesbian separatists, wise woman healers. I mean, there are all different forms, kind of like feminism, that it can take different interpretations that people can have. And I guess you would also say that they would practice through their Wicca.
0: And I always thought that Wicca and witchcraft were these ancient practices. Like a lot of people have said, I had no idea that its origins were so much more modern than all of that. And it really goes back to the 19th century, particularly uh, Masonic ritual and occult obsessions with both goddesses and matriarchies that were pretty much like in vogue during that time. Uh, and mostly, though, bandied about by dudes who were grateful not to be in those matriarchies. So the matriarchies were discussed as an
3: example of, look how far we've come. Yeah, basically. Uh, when, when all those moon goddesses ruled everything. Um, yeah, when we look at the 19th century, you have the rise of secret societies, occult practices, spiritualism, and rejection of orthodox religion and I mean I I love this period of time because some people are really kind of losing their minds.
0: Yeah, this is when we see a lot of mediums. You know, Kristen and I did that episode way back in the day where mediums the first feminists and it's so funny to me to think about it that yes there was a movement away from organized traditional religion, but much like Fox Mulder, Kristen. People still want to believe it's such human nature that even if you reject Christianity in general or Judaism or, or just a subset of either of those religions or any religion, you still have this drive to believe in something bigger than yourself. And I think that's such a human trait. And in this case, it was all about the occult and these mystical forces that weren't really Christian, weren't really Jewish. They were something else that sort of borrowed from these new traditions that were arising in the 19th century. Well, and it seems like a lot of them were
3: really uh, enamored with the power of nature, the magic in nature. So during the Romantic period, which is in the first half of the 19th century, You have these mostly male German and French thinkers who are really interested in natural forces, particularly those aligned with women. Because, you know, as as we've often talked about, you know, nature is considered very feminine and Mm -hmm.
0: maternal. Think about fertility and all that, all that jazz. All that jazz. Well, you also have to, uh, take into consideration that around this time, people are starting to sort of, uh, project a lot of meaning onto the classic gods and goddesses that had been displaced by Christianity. So all of a sudden you have a lot of people, both artists, writers, poets, who are starting to associate in their works of art, whether that is writing or like painting or sculpture, um, they're starting to associate these gods and goddesses with the natural world, with natural mystical forces, rather than how back in ye olden Greek times, people tended to look at these gods and goddesses as sort of petty, bigger, holy versions of ourselves. Like they all had fights and were cheating on each other and causing wars and strife and basically meddling in human endeavors. So the way that the romantics were looking at them was more like, well, yeah, maybe, but they're, they're mystical and they're, they're influencing nature. They're a part of nature. And so this is when we also get mother earth and things like fairies, which were typically t- tiny ladies, uh, popping up as popular deities and figures in literature
3: And there's a big milestone in 1849 when German classicist Eduard Gerard becomes the first to assert that all ancient goddesses derived from a single mother goddess. And this is really, Caroline, is making me think a lot about the title of our podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You. (laughs) Should we update that to like Stuff Single Mother Goddess? Never told you. Although the answer would be like nothing because she's the single mother goddess. So, of course, she probably knows all. So it just would. But that just doesn't mean sense. she
0: would tell us everything. Maybe she's Ooh. also afraid to have the birds and bees and periods conversation. The yes. single mother goddess never prepared us for <laughs> monarchy. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot. But it's important to keep in mind that this narrative is developing despite the fact that ancient religions were polytheistic. There's really not much evidence that these societies, these ancient societies, worshipped a single archetypal goddess. Yes, they had goddesses, but this man-driven narrative is developing in the 19th century that, like, oh, there was just one pure, earthy mother goddess who was worshipped by all of these societies. Do you think that was sort of mixing things up with, like, the cults
3: that would... Arise around specific gods and goddesses, so like the cult of
0: Diana or the cult of Dionysus. I mean, it could be. I mean, there were, there were discussions about things like the cult of, of Diana. People can, uh. Not Princess Diana listeners, by the way. Goddess Diana. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there were people who were convinced that there were still Dianic cults going on in the 19th century, that they were just like hidden away in pockets that we had yet to find. Ooh, Ooh. pocket change. (laughs) Tiny cults, yes, pocket pocket-sized tiny cults. Um, and in 1861, you've got Swiss jurist and writer Johann Jakob Bachofen. Nice pronunciation. I bet people would disagree with you. Uh, he posited that our earliest societies were matriarchies. That sounds great. I love it. Let's stop there. Femi- and there are a number of feminist thinkers who talk a
3: lot in terms of the ancient matriarchy. Yeah, too. And
0: this is this. is. I mean, this is why we're giving you this this 19th century history fair listeners to to explain where this idea came from. However, it wasn't a positive he, uh, back often. I don't know if that's really how you pronounce it. Maybe it's the but be- Oh, could, ooh, could be. Throatier.
3: With more of a cough. Mm-hmm. But the m- emphasis on the coffin. The <laughs> be- coffin. It's really popping up here in the mic.
0: He and others saw patriarchy as a victory of rationality over those feminine, those traditional feminine traits of instinct, nurturing and closeness to nature. So basically like, yes, those ancient societies were matriarchies. I'm sure of it. Because look at how powerful and amazing we are now that we've done away with all of that. Oh, that's interesting. It's kind of a way to elevate and celebrate. I didn't mean to make that rhyme. Uh, These patriarchal structures. Yeah. And aren't we so glad we have our separate spheres and women aren't allowed to go outside and get jobs because their uteruses will float away. Some serious humble bragging happening then in this
3: early matriarchy philosophy and theories. So by the early 20th century, it was generally assumed then that, of course, these ancient Mediterranean religions definitely worshipped a great Mother Earth goddess over everything else. And drawing on 19th century thought, including the patronizing Victorian idea that ancient cultures didn't realize men played a role in reproduction. Basically, any archaeological sites and corresponding female figures or representations that were uncovered were
0: thought as evidence of the goddess worship. So for instance one archaeological expedition that's frequently cited in uh texts about the development of this goddess worship idea is uncovering things at Minoan temples from Minoan society and finding artistic representations of women um And just assuming that they were either goddesses or that they were participating in a goddess worship ritual. There was no like, hey, maybe this could mean something else or these women could be doing something else. Like, who knows, shopping, I don't know. But it was automatically assumed by a lot of these people that, like, oh, no, they're just women. It just means that they're worshipping a goddess. They didn't stop to think, like, maybe something else is going on.
3: Although although i got to say that I like the idea that in the far future, that if people find the relics of my life, people would just assume, oh, evidence of that she was a goddess. People were just worshipping her.
0: Yeah. Clearly. You know? Yeah with fingers crossed. With all your YouTube videos, with this with the cache of videos, like with, people will automatically assume. Yes, yeah, so when people find the
3: pile of my YouTube wigs, be <laughs> <They're> like, obviously, <laughs> goddess. Oh, she had so much hair, she just disappeared. That's all that's left of her. So where does Wicca come into all of this? It makes a surprisingly late arrival in the mid twentieth century, thanks to a
0: guy named Jerry. Yeah, uh, amateur anthropologist Gerald B. Gardner. Uh, he seems like a, he, quite a rabble rouser, this, this Jerry. He belonged to an organization that was influenced by many 19th century occultist groups, which themselves, by the way, P.S., were influenced by Freemasons. And in the 1950s, Gardner, having all of these influences from this, like, secret society that he's part of and having read all of this stuff by the romantic authors and poets, he introduces a religion that he calls Wicca, with only one C, which he claimed, I love this, he didn't bother to say, why, yes, I've developed this system of beliefs and rituals. No, he figured that that would not get his religion enough I don't know, we would say clicks nowadays in, in the internet. It parlance. wasn't clickbaity enough. It wasn't clickbaity enough. No, he claimed that he encountered these religious beliefs and practices through a friendly coven of witches with ties to the ancient religion in his organization. But the thing is, like, people have, people like very shortly thereafter up to today have gone back and been like, there's, there's no evidence that these people even
3: existed. But uh, the the timing of this is worth mentioning, too, because Gardner kind of debuts Wicca in 1953, which was made possible by the Witchcraft Act finally being repealed in Britain in 1951. Right. So it was all about timing. Otherwise, it would have he would have had to have kept it more underground because it would be illegal But like you said, Caroline, it wasn't like he was unveiling some ancient religion, but rather what was, and and not to disparage Wicca at all, but... In terms of what Gardner was presenting, in some ways it was a hodgepodge of ideas that he collected from British occultist Eilus Sir Crowley, Charles Godfrey Leland, who was a 19th century American amateur folklorist who had claimed he found a surviving cult of Diana in Italy. Those pocket goddesses. (laughs) He found some pocket goddesses, Polly pocket goddess. (laughs) And mainly, though, he pulled from
0: British Egyptologist Margaret Alice Murray... Yeah, and Murray herself was inspired by Leland and in the 1920s developed a framework of Wiccan ritual and belief. She even wrote the introduction to Gardner's 1954 book. Like, that's how intimately aligned they were. And Margaret Alice Murray is a pretty interesting figure in and of herself, as if you couldn't tell by the whole, like, Egyptologist developing a Wiccan religion thing. Uh, She wrote the book The Witch Cult in Western Europe in 1921. And I know we're backing up. Here, but it did regain popularity in the 40s and 50s, thanks to people like Gardner and the growth of what we call modern Wicca. And this witch cult
3: book was notable because what she did was comb through accused witches' confessions and treat them, Egyptologists that she was, as ethnographic data. In other words, considering them truthful as opposed to just being confessions under duress that aren't to be trusted.
0: Yeah, and so she noticed patterns in some of the testimony, and she wanted to know why so many of these accused witches had said similar things, like, for instance, they had signed a pact with the devil, they had engaged in ritual orgies, they possessed magical powers. To me, this just sounds like a college party so far. Uh, and she concluded, based on the testimony of people who witnessed the trials, that there had not been torture, that these people were really part of an organized religion or fertility cult that had survived in Europe since ancient times. So there's this idea, again, that modern Wicca and witchcraft was connected to an ancient lady religion. And all of this helped
3: strengthen the ideas that witchcraft, again, was super ancient. It stretched back to the Paleolithic era and that the church had tried to eradicate it. And in fact, she linked witchcraft's horned god that we mentioned a while back to ancient cave paintings. And she said the leader of a coven would wear horns and was called the devil by early Christians, indicating that this is how Christianity came up with the horned depiction of the devil,
0: Yeah, and so basically she argued that when witches on trial confessed to worshiping the devil, they weren't saying, yes, I worship our Lord Satan, that it was like, no, we are uh, a peaceful nature people who in our coven, you know, swore loyalty to our officer who, as part of the ritual, puts on a set of horns and we dance around a fire or whatever. So basically, these people are harmless and witchcraft is ancient and uh, the church is evil. Uh, she also, by the way, did assert that fairies were real and that they had a matriarchal culture. So, you throw in some
3: Masonic influence, some tarot influence, which side note Caroline, we do need to do an episode
0: all about tarot cards. Heck yeah. Oh my god, middle school Caroline. Mm. Oh, were you into tarot? Runes and tarot. Oh. See, I was like, I was like the people at the beginning that I mentioned like I have to believe in something because I'm not into Christianity. Well, I can't wait for our podcast
3: tarot card reading. Um <laughs> uh, but in addition to those things, you have archaic language especially in spells rituals, nudism, because Gardner was a nudist and a little bit of ritual sex. And you have modern American Wicca basically in the way that Gardner outlined it. But Caroline, mm-hmm. you got to give an honorable mention to Doreen, Edith, Domini, Valenti, because yes. without her, Gardner's ideas probably would not have been as successful as they were and, um, she became one of the most influential leaders of Wicca, and is part of why the religion is seen as so women-friendly today. So she was initiated into Wicca in 1953. So she was there from the early days in the oh, beginning. Geez. she's yes. <laughs> um, and she was responsible for writing much of early Gardnerian religious liturgy, mm. and in later years she played a big part in bringing. Wicca into wider public attention because she was very prolific. Mm -hmm. So she wrote an ABC of Witchcraft, Natural Magic, Witchcraft for Tomorrow, and the Rebirth of Witchcraft. So I mean she was really spreading a lot of a lot of this stuff about.
0: Fascinating. So she is she would you argue that she helped attract women to Wicca and witchcraft during that time? Yes, because, I mean, that was part of the attraction
3: to it in the first place was that there was room for female leadership in it, unlike mm-hmm. more traditional religions like Christianity that hasn't always been so kind to female leadership.
0: You don't say. Well, speaking of that impressive woman... I think you mean witch, I Caroline? Sh- I-, I sure do. No, the no impressive witch? No disrespect. Because it's us, we should probably now talk about how we get our modern links between feminism and the practice of Wicca and witchcraft. Because, you know, we mentioned that all of those 19th century romantic dudes were basically like, oh, thank God, we're we're past that matriarchy period in our history. It was a dark period. Once we get into the 20th century and we get into first wave and second wave feminism, you have a lot of women saying, no, it's not that we're past it. It's that we're just in this like awful, terrible, patriarchal holding period before we get back to our matriarchal cultures. And so we will talk all about that after a quick break. Can I rant for a sec, please?
3: the show, we talked a lot about dudes. And people might have been scratching their heads because the title of this podcast is Feminist Witchcraft. And they're probably
0: like, Kristen and Caroline, why are you talking so much about dudes? Where's all the feminism and all this stuff? That's right. Feminism and witchcraft have been pretty closely aligned. And not just since Second Wave Feminism with the actual literal group that was called Witch. Uh, it has its roots in the suffrage movement, too, with star witchcraft scholar Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And, of course, you might recognize her name from being, oh, a feminist leader, a suffragist, and a historian. She used the narrative of witchcraft and the witch hunt and witch trials to enlighten her readers about basically how the church was damaging women. She wanted to give women a historical context for their oppression. So in 1893, she wrote the book Woman, Church, and State, and traced the witch hunts and executions to a religious belief in the quote, extreme wickedness of woman who would sell her soul to the devil to become a witch. And basically, through her book, Gage was responding to a conservative movement in society to blur the lines between church and state, which sounds familiar, and she was determined. This woman was determined to educate new suffragists in the movement, those who wanted to use their potential vote to support the more conservative blurring of the lines changes about the ways in which the church had harmed women. She was basically like, look, we have this history of the church burning women at the stake, using the excuse of witchcraft, so let's talk about witches, and let's talk about how the witch hunt was really a woman hunt. Yeah, she was like, just sub
3: out women for witch, and your eyes will be open to everything. And she argued that witches could be good, and were simply what she called women of superior knowledge. And this is a fascinating pop cultural connection between first wave suffrage, witchcraft, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Because, listeners, prepare to have your mind blown. Her concept of good women as witches inspired, ultimately, Glenda the Good Witch and
0: the Wicked Witch of the West in the Wizard of Oz. That's right. Yeah, she was the mother-in-law of Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, she inspired this duo because, according to Baum's biographer, Glinda's power came from within herself. That's an idea that Gage inspired. And it's also a theme that we will revisit when we talk about second wave feminism and modern Wicca. But Gage put forward the idea. She was one of the first women to do so that the idea that Christianity had always restricted the, quote, liberty women enjoyed under the old civilization. So there's that idea again of that, like, super free, utopian, peaceful, woman-driven society. And she highlighted the church's targeting of women in the witch hunts, and she pointed to their persecution of women of remarkable intellect and beauty who were thought to be... In league with the devil.
3: Which is very similar to how we even pop-culturally portray, which is a lot of times today. Um, but this is really important. She made the claim that the church had executed upwards of 9 million people, mostly women, for witchcraft. And this was kind of her hook with all of it, of like, look at this massacre that has happened. This is clear-cut evidence of how the church has pathologically targeted all of these women. So, ladies, we need to cut ties. You need to get wise to this history, or herstory, rather. Um, But the thing is, modern historians put that number much closer to forty to 50,000. Nonetheless, her argument and that startling number of 9 million, which was not entirely accurate, was effective. I mean, it was very easy for women of her day in the 19th century to feel connected to the witchy, especially if they were people like Gage, who wanted suffrage, who wanted freedom, who wanted to exercise their intellect. Um, so you have this this first connection between feminism and witchcraft of, of basically the essence of it being any woman who is not interested in the patriarchy.
0: Yeah, it was it was giving women that historical foundation of you once had power. The church did away with it. When we get the vote, you cannot support the church because look at this colorful and tragic history that we've had. We need to get back to a place where women have power. So it's easy to see why 19th century women, suffragists in particular, would be attracted to that narrative. When we get into the second wave of feminism, though, it's less about that witchery, establishing the witchery, because by then it's already well-established, it's ingrained in a lot of narratives, and it's more about just smashing that patriarchy of saying, okay, yeah, Matilda Jocelyn Gage gave us this history, we believe in it, let's get back now to a point where things are driven by women.
3: So in 1968, things get about as second wave as they possibly can, when you have a group of New York feminists led by Robin Morgan form which, which stands for Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. And listen, people, they had like zero to do with Wicca. They were not uh, religious in any way, shape or form. They were more intent on an anarchic sisterhood that urged women to claim their power. I mean, they were essentially like going around and disrupting things. So their, their favorite was to target centers of financial corporate and academic power with very theatrical kinds of protests. And they first struck Halloween 1968 on Wall Street which they referred to as the Imperialist Phallic Society. (laughs) And they danced in front of the Federal Reserve Treasury Bank, led by a high priestess toting a papier-mâché pig head on a golden platter. Mm. And they surrounded a George Washington statue and defaced it with witch stickers, which got them kicked out of that area. But they kept on going. (laughs) They just ran through Manhattan, essentially. Later that night, for instance, they exorcised a burlesque house. They put a hex on Max Factor at a beauty clinic, and they went to a fancy restaurant uh, and handed out garlic cloves and cards reading, We are witch, we are women, we are liberation, we are we. These women were not to be stopped. And you got to hand it to some second wave feminists. Like, yeah, they weren't so great with intersectionality, but my
0: goodness, were they theatrical in
3: their protests?
0: Yeah, they sure were. There are some great pictures if you Google, or if you go to Stuff I'm Never Told You.com and look at the source post for this episode, you can find a link to an article about witch. But there's some great photos out there of them, like, running around screaming, trying to be as scary as possible. But yeah, like Kristen said, this was obviously not a religion. This was not part of Wicca as goddess worship. But it was based on the idea that witch just were the original, quote, guerrillas and resistance fighters against oppression, particularly the oppression of women right down the ages. Again, there is that reference to like an ancient female driven religion that's been passed down.
3: Yeah. I mean, and, and, and they also called themselves covens, like rather mm-hmm. than some kind of support groups, there were covens that sprung up all around Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, North Carolina. Hey, I was going. surprised. To Maybe learn. it was in the research triangle. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, and they played around too with the Witch acronym. Um, not all went by Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. There is also Women Inspired to Commit Herstery. Mm. Um, also, Women Incensed at Telephone Company Harassment, which, listen, ladies, I can get behind <laughs> that. Um, but they called their strikes Zaps. And I like that in 1969, some covens zapped bridal fairs in San Francisco and New York because they said, quote, marriage is a dehumanizing institution, legal whoredom for women.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine being in a bridal fair and having (laughs) a bunch of women with their faces painted white, wearing all black, running in and telling you you're a whore? (laughs) Hello. Say yes to the dress. (laughs) Zap it, ladies. I'd I'd finally watch that show. Uh, God, every time, every time I go home and hang out with my mother, she's watching that show, and she always looks at me and she's like, "One day when this is you, I promise I won't be like these terrible mothers who judge their their daughter's dresses." And I'm like, "I'm not sure what planet you're living on, but that's absolutely going
1: to be you." Anywho, this episode is brought to you by Snagajob.
2: Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire,
1: or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. Not
2: banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
1: PNC Bank brilliantly boring since eighteen sixty five.
2: Brilliantly boring since eighteen sixty five is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC.
3: I mean it's Caroline, it sounds like from what your tone that we are you're primed to zap. <laughs> Say yes to the dress set. <laughs> I'm saying is that I can envision the headline. You know, feminist podcasters arrested, <laughs> dressed up as witches, arrested on TLC. Say yes to the dress shoot site. Yeah. Okay, it's a little bit long. All it, right, it is a it little. Can long. Some tweaking. Yeah, but I'm just saying it's got all the ingredients for a viral post.
0: Yeah, we can bring Stacy London along, and I have a witch hat. Perfect. I have a top hat. Perfect. <laughs> And things don't slow down by any means. In 1971, we get spiritual feminist Zuzanna Budapest, who starts the lovely named, I love this name, Susan B. Anthony Coven number one. Yes, uh, she ignored traditional Wicca's, so we're not talking about feminist Wicca. She ignored traditional Wicca's secrecy and their inclusion of men in order to both bring more women into the fold and teach more women about the religion. And of course she gave her group's protest of religious bent. You know, they would also be protesting the financial and the corporate but using candles and chants and things like that to really give it sort of an eerie vibe.
3: And I was interested to learn that it was around this time that some Wiccans who were not so interested in Susan B. Anthony Coven Number 1 and its cohorts uh, complained that feminist witchcraft was this American product, that it was something that started in the U.S. And in fact, some British male Wiccans, because remember, Jerry Gardner, And Doreen Valenti started everything in the U.K. And some British male Wiccans were especially put off by feminist witchcraft, uh, quipping that it was just populated by a load of
0: lesbians. Now, hang on. Gerald Gardner basically just invented something, like, out of something that wasn't real. So, So then you have male Wiccans in England saying, how dare you create your own Wiccan outpost, outcropping of this religion. That seems a little funny, doesn't it? I like your simultaneous skepticism and support of Wicca (laughs) happening right now. (laughs) I know. I'm a complex individual. So the following year in 1972, this is after Susanna Budapest has started the Susan B. Anthony Coven, Gloria Steinem, writes an essay about ancient gynocentric societies echoing. She echoes, you guys. She's echoing. She's echoing the idea, the Victorian patronizing idea that ancient societies didn't understand the whole paternity issue. And that women were indeed worshipped for their fertility. So I appreciate what's happening in order to, like, inspire women and try to empower them and give them a connection to a a girl power path. However, like, can we please do away with this idea that people don't understand how babies are made? I mean, this isn't the movie Lagoon, right? Where Brooke Shields doesn't understand how pregnancy works but women did
3: undeniably have a very intimate connection obviously to things like pregnancy but to childbirth mm-hmm. as well and this is something that comes more into play the following year in 1973 when Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English penned the booklet Witches Midwives and Nurses making the case that women need to reclaim their place in medicine as healers um Because before medicine became more male-dominated and professionalized, when it came to childbirth, it happened exclusively at home under the guidance of usually a female midwife. And you have similar things happening in terms of
0: herbalists and natural healers, um, which were usually women as well. Yeah, and so this pair were saying that witches were just healers whom the church sought to discredit. And a lot of other scholars would argue, well, in fact, a lot of the women who were accused and executed were not necessarily the leaders and pillars of the community, the intelligent healers. A lot of these women were poor and had nothing to do with sort of leadership. It was more about having a an unfortunate reputation basically in your neighborhood and then getting accused of being a witch.
3: Well, and wasn't there also a lot of mistrust if these women were old
0: and had no children? Yes, yeah, so that that was part of it too. like if you and how is that any different from 2015? Like, if you fall outside the the norms of society, we're going to be suspicious of you.
3: Yeah, instead of calling us witches, they just call us selfish bitches. Well,
0: I mean, they're still spinster. Yeah. That's still around. I mean, people looked at spinster women back in the day and were like, she's a witch, she turned me into a newt. And it's the same today. P- you know, people are always accusing me of turning them into newts. <laughs> and for that, though... For that reason, I totally,
3: totally, totally get this, especially second wave fascination Mm -hmm. with witches and witchcraft and the desire to reclaim that in a way. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, you have someone like uh, the very influential California witch Miriam Starhawk Simas, who in 1979 publishes the book The Spiral Dance, A Rebirth of the Ancient Religion of the Great Goddess, and much like Matilda Jocelyn Gage and Margaret Alice Murray, who had sort of inserted these snippets of sort of faux-history into our narrative of empowerment, Simos uh, did the same thing. And she herself, by the way, speaking of reclaiming that whole idea of woman as powerful, not scary, I do think it's interesting to note that Starhawk, as she calls herself has said that she identifies as a witch because it forces people to confront why they fear the word. So, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting perspective on it. But in her book, uh, Starhawk lays out all of these ideas and ideals around Wicca that aren't entirely accurate and that are borrowed from those feminist women who came before. She claims that it's the oldest religion going back 35,000 years, that its earliest adherents worshipped a mother goddess and a horned god. You know, we've been over all of this. Uh, she says it was part of a peaceful, woman-centric, egalitarian society until those jerks, the Indo-European man people, rode through on their horse beasts bringing war and weapons and patriarchy, which she claimed didn't exist until this happened. And so then... She jumps from the arrival of Indo-European patriarchy to then moving on to Christianity, which then uh, leads her to discuss the witch hunts and executions. And she also puts forward Matilda Gage's figure of nine million executed.
3: And so uh, her book, which, by the way, is still a lot of people's first introduction to Wicca, inspires a lot of second waivers who connected with Those narratives of the patriarchy, essentially ruining everything, taking away women's power and the importance of connecting with a goddess or the goddess. And her work is highly influential
0: in the Wicca sphere.
3: Hmm. Did I just make
0: up a term? I don't I love know. love it. <laughs> um, that could also be like a candle industry thing. Yes. <laughs> 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 Although connected. Uh, they need candles for these ceremonies. New side business, Caroline. <laughs> Cottage industry. And her work did inspire a whole bunch of second waivers who connected with this idea of the patriarchy ruining everything and the importance of connecting with a goddess. And one of the... Other big names during this period in terms of feminism and witchcraft is the self-described radical lesbian feminist Mary Daly, who had talked about witches in her own 1979 book, *Gyn*. Gein- Ecology, there's a, a slash in there. Uh, but in on Mother's Day, 1989, Daly staged The Witch's Return, a theatrical reversal of the old witch trials where she basically put these so-called agents of the patriarchy on trial. Uh, pornographers, serial killers, earth rapers, academic brain drainers, and the Roman Catholic hierarchy, just to name a few. Uh, and during this ceremony... All of these figures were ritually declared guilty, hexed, and beheaded. And Daly claims that goddess murder is a tenet of the patriarchy. And, you know, I can't really disagree with her, considering the history of where we get this idea of, like, a one goddess, like, archetypal goddess worship thing from, you know, 19th century dudes. Um But she says that the answer to that is that women need to invoke the goddess within. And she did call witch hunts deliberate woman hunts. So we've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So where does all this lead us, Caroline? I mean, we're in the 90s. Then we transition more into the goddess movement, where it seems like it's a return more to nature and finding, you know, your power from within, less so than beheading academic brain drainers, say. I mean, because... Really, the more scholarship on witchcraft and the history of witches and especially the killing of witches, the more that that happens, the
0: less evidence of this turns up. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is more evidence, for instance, that there were not these utopian peaceful societies. That's that's not to say that there weren't societies that were more egalitarian or that that had matrilineality. I'm glad I did not stumble over that word. Um, But, you know, there's really little evidence that people weren't killing each other. There's more evidence that people were killing each other than were living in egalitarian, peaceful utopias. Um, and the thing about this whole narrative to uh, woman as witch, it plays into this idea of woman as nurture. It seems like a lot of people, women, too, are embracing this idea that was put forth by uh, kind of misogynistic 19th century men that women are closer to nature, they're more natural, they're more peaceful. And so we should appreciate their their chastity and their peacefulness and their earth motherliness.
3: So do we see, though, any, based on everything that we know, all of the things that we've read, do we see any usefulness for feminist Wicca? Because a lot of what we've been doing over the past half hour plus has been debunking it.
0: Well, much like many religions, Wicca might, have a degree of made-upness, but feminist Wicca, I can definitely see that it's a way to experience and exercise power and to connect with yourself and with nature, to reject the patriarchy and to foster a spiritual life in a religion that's all about women it gives them a place at the table so to speak and Melissa Raphael who wrote introducing theology that's theology with an a to indicate goddess worship uh, discourse on the goddess cites Naomi Goldenberg who said goddess religion can often appear as wishcraft because it teaches women to use spells and rituals to express their hopes and ambitions and desires. Sometimes the idea of a matriarchy in the past is put forward as a wish about history, a desire to be realized in the present and future. And so in that regard, I think that it's not unlike many other religions where you want a sense of belonging and empowerment through believing that you have a place in something bigger than yourself.
3: And that goes to something that Caroline Ball, who wrote a whole thesis on Wicca witchcraft and the goddess revival, points out is that ultimately it's a lot more about individuality rather than historical fact, because as she writes, it's a religion based upon individual experience and Wicca is simply a framework to allow these experiences to happen. So it's understandable if we think about the structure of, say, a coven that offers you a community and this offers you a framework to access perhaps this power, in quotes, that you might not otherwise feel able to, to do.
0: Yeah, in other religions, for sure. And, and I mean, this is why I read O Magazine. Well, I'm saying not even like in a religious context, just
3: generally speaking, you know, it can allow you to do it as opposed yeah. to just not having any religion whatsoever.
0: And other people find this through the practice of yoga, through meditation. There's many different ways to feel like you're connecting to a deeper, more peaceful and more powerful place within yourself um, that's not an organized official religion or Wicca or anything like that. There are many different ways to achieve this, and this is just one of them.
3: Well, I'm really curious to hear from listeners on this because I have a feeling there are some Wiccans listening who might have some very different perspectives in what we've been sharing. And we're absolutely open to that because this is a half-hour podcast. It's really hard to condense an entire belief system down into... Like 45 minutes. So, listeners, we want to hear from you. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. <laughs>
0: We have one here from Megan about our women and weightlifters episode. She says, hello, ladies. I listened to your podcast today regarding ladies and lifting and had to write in. I'm an American College of Sports Medicine exercise physiologist, and I'm a graduate student in a muscle research lab. So this podcast was right up my alley. I thought you may find one of my teaching stories rather interesting. Last year, as part of my assistantship, I taught a college weightlifting class. I'm about five foot two and about 115 pounds. People, especially the gents, were shocked to see that I was their weightlifting teacher, ascribing to cultural stereotypes that only big, burly dudes know anything about weightlifting. One day, while letting my class free lift, an older gentleman approached me and started talking about my class. He proceeded to tell me what and how I should be teaching. What's even more annoying is that everything he was saying was either flat-out wrong or outdated. I read a lot of research and am pretty well-versed on resistance exercise, but this guy was unconvinced any time I told him research didn't support a thing. He said, so annoying. Luckily, going through some of my course evaluations, many of the students, including the gents, learned a lot from the class. And bonus, my ladies were less intimidated by the class since I wasn't a super bulky man, bro. Glad to spread some of the good weightlifting vibes into the world. Also, quick PSA, since I'm an exercise nerd and is super passionate about evidence-based practices, if you are looking for some help with starting a resistance training regime, I highly suggest very critically evaluating the credentials of any fitness expert you may find. There are no or very few state laws regarding who can prescribe exercise. There are some personal training certification exams that are only a 20-minute quiz. So you have to be careful with who you're looking at. I highly suggest American College of Sports Medicine or National Strength and Condition Association certified individuals. Both of those organizations are leaders in the field and use firsthand research to make exercise recommendations. Further, the certifying exams are pretty difficult, and for some you need an undergrad degree in exercise science. Other certifying exams are not nearly as intense, and the personal trainers are not nearly as knowledgeable. Not trying to sell these organizations, but if you're going to be paying someone for a service, I think they should be well qualified to provide that service. Anyway, love the podcast and super love this episode. You ladies rock. And so do you, Megan. Thank you. And I've got a letter here
3: from Rhea about our Rowdy Ronda Rousey episode. And she writes, as a UFC fan who's been watching for a few years now, I feel like this episode was quite biased off the bat. I understand that a contact sport like MMA isn't everyone's cup of tea, but a lot of your criticisms of Rousey felt out of context, gendered and removed from the sport. Ding, ding. Let's go. When you discuss the trash talking and comments made about Misha Tate, you forgot to mention how Rousey's attitude is not unique to her, but part of the game. When top fighters like Conor McGregor smack talk opponents in a similar or worse nature, it just makes him more charismatic and confident, with no one calling him a catty misandrist. Even Rousey's do-nothing bitches vlog was in retaliation to Beth Correa's very personal attack statements during the lead-up to their fight. The focus on Dana White wanting Rousey because of her looks and not just skill, which is partially true, however, didn't highlight that the entire UFC works this way and doesn't treat the male fighters any different, with White having recently told one of his fighters to get more popular. This sport is a modern mix of skill, social media, self-promotion, and entertainment, and Rousey is a smart businesswoman who creates the same hype and fan base as other major fighters in order to get the championship title fights. It seemed as though your discussion used Rousey's gender as a reason for her to be less than her male fighter counterparts. Above all, she's a fighter, a point that wasn't stressed enough. She needs to make as much money in her physical prime before acquiring any serious injuries beat her opponents as fast as possible and make the most of this time in her career. Yes, her comments on potential steroided or transgender opponents were insensitive, but the core of her words was that, quote, this person is going to physically attack me so muscle mass power or a good chin can be a seriously unfair advantage. So, thank you for those insights. Rhea, we appreciate your more expert look at Rousey, gender, and UFC. So, with that, if you have expert views to share with us as well, or just, you know, funny links to send us, momstuff at com is where you can email us. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources, so you can see images of those feminist witches zapping all over town, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com.
2: To start planning your trip,
1: visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer
2: than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive